Welcome to Talking Infrastructure, the fortnightly podcast brought to you by global infrastructure company, ACOM. In this series, we'll be discussing the hot topics, key projects and innovations that are helping to solve some of the world's most complex infrastructure challenges. Hello and welcome to ACOM's Talking Infrastructure podcast. My name's James Banks and I'm ACOM's Head of Marketing and Communications in Europe and India. Today, we're discussing a topic that's referred to in conversations every day, across all walks of life and across all sectors and industries. Data. How do we respect it? How should we use it? How should we protect it? In essence, when it comes to our infrastructure and major programmes, how do we get our approach to data right? To help me answer these questions and hopefully discuss a few more, we have an extremely distinguished panel to share their thoughts and opinions on the subject. Firstly, from Arup, we have Tim Chapman. Tim is Arup's Net Zero Carbon for Infrastructure Director, with responsibility for stepping up design solutions to address zero carbon resilience and social value. He is passionate about bringing about the best long-term value to society from infrastructure and using cutting-edge techniques to decarbonize the industry. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. Next from Aegis is Director of Digital Asset Management, Martin Valence. Martin's key focus is to take advantage of new technologies to improve the whole asset lifecycle. His extensive cross-industry digital experience has inspired him to push for increasing efficiency and optimization of digital asset management. Welcome, Martin. Thanks, James. From Costain, we are joined by Matthew Hyam. As Chief Digital Officer, Matt is committed to advancing the digital revolution in the construction industry to create a more equitable and sustainable future. He has a wealth of knowledge across different sectors, which allows him to bring cross-industry thinking to enable the best project outcomes. Glad to Welcome, Matt. <laughs> and finally, from ACOM, we're joined by Ambrose Maguire. Ambrose leads ACOM's program management business line in Europe and India. With a long history in the delivery of major infrastructure programs such as the Lower Thames Crossing and HS2 Phase 1, he has led consultant and client teams in the Middle East, Southeast Asia and Europe. Welcome, Ambrose. Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us. Uh, what a lineup! Um, thank you, everybody, for joining me today to discuss what is a you know a very very important subject. Um, firstly, if I can come to you, Ambrose, with a nice easy one just to get the ball rolling. Um, whose responsibility is data? Who should be looking after it? Thank you, James. Uh, I, I suppose easily said, uh, rather more difficult to put into practice. Um, everybody on a program. It has a degree of responsibility uh, for uh, looking after and managing data, um, whether that's under the statutory responsibilities that program partners have or compliance with the uh, digital security policies, processes and procedures that might be established at the beginning. So this very, very basic level, given that everybody, every role in a program might be affected by that obligation, uh, to my mind, the, the first challenge is getting a level of induction, getting people aligned so that they understand their responsibilities to respect the data owned by individuals, to control the data owned by organisations 
and most importantly, to make sure that di digital information is integrated to the extent possible, but because ultimately that brings success on the program. Tim, Tim, would you agree about what what brings success? Um, I agree totally with what Ambrose just said, um, but probably what I'd add, I think, is that success in the past will be different to what success comes in the future. Um, I think as we look towards um, the new paradigm we need to do, where infrastructure needs to serve society better, um, I think we need to actually probably tick off a, a lot more metrics and gather different and new data to make better decisions. Um, I do a lot of work in low carbon. I do some work in social value. Um, I'm learning about biodiversity and uh, planetary boundaries. And these are areas we actually don't have any decent data Data and we can't make good decisions about. And I think the critical thing for me is generating the data that enables us to make better decisions. Um, as an example, working in sort of um, traditional spheres on cost, which we all know very well, um, good projects know costs very well. They've got good normalized data, so they can make good decisions based on actually quite early stages. We can't yet do that in these new areas, um, uh, but we need to accelerate that curve really quickly of gathering the data. But we have to be able to make the good decisions now, not in five years' time with better data. So shortcutting that loop is going to be really interesting. And Matt, if I come to, to you next, sort of the back of what Tim was saying then, if we need to get people in, you know, embracing data and getting them to understand the challenges, and as you say, now, not in five years' time, how much of a challenge is that to get people to understand and to and to embrace the importance of, of data? It's huge, um, but it starts with kind of two or three things, I guess. One is is changing the culture of data. We've spent 20 years looking at data as uh, the new oil, and therefore it's perceived around risk, intellectual property, and monetization. And it's often broken into silos, even within our own organizations, never mind when you start connecting other organizations together. So first of all, we have to pivot our, our mental kind of culture around data in that space. The second one is skills. So um, the skills is democratization. We've got a big digital skills gap and very heavily large amounts of that is pivoted on data. Uh, I think the, there was a report out last year, we need 518,000 people in digital and data skills for them every year to be recruited for the next 10 years. And that's more than we've ever recruited in one year for, that we've recruited in the last decade. So it shows you the kind of scale of that. So then we need to look at technologies that democratize the skills to people who don't need to have a PhD in data science. So it's really key that we invest in that area and take people on that journey. And then the third part is we talk about data, but we don't often talk about actually the conversions of data into information. So getting people, getting data into the people's right, uh, into their hands at the right time so that they can make the informed decision to deliver the outcome we're actually looking at and understanding the outcome and then working back across that pathway. So those are the three big things about how we can make it part of everybody's day-to-day -day role. So just a couple of challenges ahead then, I suppose. Um, yeah, just just, yeah, just one or two. Um, Martin, I mean, you know, we're skimming the surface a little bit at the moment, but what are the problems, you know, we face if if things go go wrong, if we don't meet the challenges that, that Matt outlined there? You know, what yeah, can we face? I, 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 it's an interesting question. I'll start with what's the best case scenario of of not meeting those challenges of having poor data. And, and I'd say the best case scenario is, is, your, is loss of trust. People lose trust in, in where you're heading and what you're trying to achieve in how you're working. And that's both, you know, internal and external stakeholders. So it, 
it, you, you lose that trust at the start. It's very, very hard to regain it. And you give people uh, an excuse to default back to old ways of working. And let's be clear, they're not traditional ways of working that people like to call it. It's old ways of working. So you give people excuses not to use the data and not to try to collect it properly. I'd say that's the best case. The worst case, um, I mean, there's multiple things that could happen here. It, it, it could be um, incorrect decisions being made, wrong materials, wrong time, wrong place, wrong people, wrong tools, um, uh, all, all the things that can go wrong in major infrastructure can happen because of poor data. Uh, and of course, ultimately, that's going to lead to uh, inflated budgets, inflated timescales, and again, loss of confidence, um, you know, certainly from a public perspective. Um, Ambrose, there was a term that you used in the day about messy data. I suppose that that would be be a fallout from what Martin's worst case scenario was talking about. There, I'm not, I'm not quite clear on what the what the term messy data means, but I'll I'll, I'll give you a view from somebody who's worked on one or two uh, com- complex programs of some scale. Um, I've always been a great believer in applying the Preto principle. That is, we make a decision based on eighty percent. Uh, of the required information, and usually that that sort of eighty percent approach gives you the the right conclusion to a uh, to to a decision. Um, what that means for the quality of data is we don't need to get it a hundred percent right. We don't need to have it absolutely tied up in a bow and presented to us as a, as a decision. It's just the trends. It's the it's the the movement towards a conclusion that we're looking to make, and so. Um, to my mind, people spend a long time and a lot of lot of residual effort in trying to get their data sources absolutely buttoned down to a level of detail, when frequently the decision makers don't have, actually require that high quality of data. That said, the reverse position is that if uh, the data you're providing is unreliable, if it isn't integrated, if I take, for example, um, uh, the latest trend towards digital twin production, if one part of the chain uh, isn't isn't to the same quality as the rest, then you begin to get uh, misalignment of how the design develops, how information develops, and and obviously that isn't a designed state. So there's this question of assurance of the information that's being provided, provide some offline checks and balances to allow that to ensure that the quality of data is being correctly reported. But at that point, once the data is presented for a decision, uh, that eighty percent rule usually applies. How do we know, Ambrose, stay with you on, just on picking up on point now, how do we know that the, the data is accurate? Um, for that, we rely on the what, what I describe as the assurance processes that you put in place. That is that you put in place checks and balances, uh, independent review or uh, interdisciplinary review that allows you to ensure that uh, as a team, the integrated team are generally happy with the quality of information that's being presented to them. Uh, and I'd come in there and say that data quality and measuring data quality is always a really sticky uh, question to to answer. Are, are you talking data completeness? Are there missing fields where there should be an answer? Are you talking Are you talking data accuracy? So have you got a numerical result where you'd expect uh, uh, an alphanumerical result? Uh, and uh, and finally, is you might have the field complete. And it might have the correct length of text that you'd expect to see, but actually the answer is altogether wrong. You, you, you know, you, you're asking for a colour and it says black and it should be white. So there are three different 
very easy ways that data quality can be poor um, and people often uh, don't really specify what they mean or what they expect from that. I mean, one would imagine that good data quality is all three of those fields, um, you know, being addressed. There is an answer where it should be. It is of the correct format and it is the actual correct answer. Um, the last one, po possibly the hardest to, to verify usually. I can actually probably add to that as well. So um, I think speaking as someone very old, um, I'm used to data not necessarily being digital. I mean, we deal with data in every part of what we do. Um, I started off my life without a computer on my desk. I did stuff by hand. I gathered data from tests. I did all sorts of various things. I think so quite often worthwhile going back to sort of the hierarchy of sort of insight that you can take from data. You can sort of a sort of data then information, then knowledge, then wisdom. And I think um, uh, each one of those is a level of refinement and intelligent input. Um, so I think we're talking about automated ways and quick ways of making sure that large data lakes, data oceans are clean and not messy and hopefully as good as possible. But then to actually work out the insight, you once you have clean data, but actually an ocean of it, it's still not giving you much insight. The critical thing then is the intelligent input to create data to information, then information to knowledge and finally wisdom and i think actually the critical thing for us as all designers people involved in infrastructure is is wisdom it's a very rarefied form of data where you know there's been a series of intelligent inputs to bring it together make sure it's not misleading and actually brings down to governance processes and governance is basically about actually whether you're misleading yourself whether you believe as a team or as an individual that what you have might not be right but i'm still going to run with it and i think actually good modern intelligent organizations uh, will make sure that they're dealing with wisdom when they're making the key decisions that Ambrose is talking about, that level of sort of rarification of data. So obviously we're here to talk about infrastructure, so let's focus a little bit on that. Tim, on, on that on your point there, I, like, I really like that information, knowledge, wisdom, that's, that's a really nice way of putting it. What benefits can wisdom give infrastructure pro programs, projects? You know, How can it keep it on track? How can it keep it uh, focused? Well, again, to bring it to the world of sustainability and carbon and things like that, which are the newer areas, I think it's actually really tricky because, as I said before, we're trying to actually be wise without having the data to support it. And actually, how do we accelerate the useful data acquisition to make quick answers? Um, again, as an engineer, I'm used to dealing with scales and numbers, and actually I, I, numbers have meaning. So if someone said about, talks about a bending moment or a length or whatever else, people understand implicitly what it means. When you speak about pounds, everyone understands totally what it's meant. When you talk about pounds per square meter, it starts becoming meaningful as us. pounds per kilometer, pounds per whatever. Um, so I think what we need to do is actually this wisdom point is actually trying to work out how to become wise really quickly. Um, and actually on something like carbon, most people don't actually know what a ton of carbon is or what a megaton of carbon is. So it could be, going back to Martin's point, is it blue, is it green, is it red? I've got no idea. Is it a million tons, 10 million tons, 100 million tons? We don't actually get at that level of calibration. Um, and I think in this particular area, it's a very new field of data. Uh, we're training people to, tr to come together and understand the unit scales and then to make good decisions. So as an example, when I talk to people, I say the A14 in East Anglia is about a megaton. 
Um, if it's a bit more, a bit less, doesn't matter. Actually, we're getting to a level of sort of sensitivity back to um, Ambrose's sort of Pareto principle of understanding roughly where it is. And you can then work out the components of where they are. But when we're actually talking about net zero carbon, um, it's very difficult to work out how you make something net zero unless you actually offset. And to offset the A14, we would need a forest that's about a thousand, thousand square kilometres, 30 kilometres by 30 kilometres, a forest the size of London. So when you actually find people making glib things about, I'm going to make a piece of infrastructure in net zero, they need to understand the implications of what they're saying. And too often, I don't think they do. Mm-hmm. So very simply, A14, decent length of dual carriageway, needs a forest size of London to offset it to become net zero. Actually, I think our transport schemes like HS2 can be net zero much better by things like mode shift. But to understand these sort of big whole life principles that it becomes, it comes alive. And I think as we try and serve society better about net zero, about biodiversity, about social value, it's actually changing the rules that we usually have as engineers and as infrastructure designers putting aside the competencies that we already have and banking them, but actually try very quickly using data to get on top of these new areas to actually bring insight and help better decision-making. I think that's the paradigm shift though, isn't it? Is the is what Tim's outlined there and what we've all been talking about is obsess about the outcome rather than obsess about the data and only deliver the very thinnest amount of data you require in order to deliver the outcome. Because otherwise, everybody goes away and builds all these wonderful, massive, I spent a big chunk of my previous career working for Microsoft, listening to customers talking about, I need an enterprise data warehouse, I need a data lake, and it's a data ocean. It's like, to deliver what? (laughs) What's the outcome you're trying to deliver, and what's the thinnest, cleanest way you can deliver that outcome? The construction industry is phenomenal at delivering complex outcomes for our customers. And yet when it comes to data, we go and overcomplicate the back end of data um, rather than actually just obsessing on the outcome of change that you want to actually implement and then go back, work back from that. And how do I, how do I get to that point um, in the same way that we would if we were building HS2 or the A14 or something along those lines? Just build the same practices, but do it at the same level of data. So if we take a, an example in design, I'm interested in how we introduce those tests of wisdom back into the preparation and structuring of our data. Uh, What Tim has described there in talking about the overall uh, carbon impact of a project is based on years of wisdom in working the subject matter field and having a feel for the data. My challenge in design is how I introduce those, those judgment calls that senior designers make which are really annoying to graduates when they're preparing a design. How on earth did he go in and spot the one the one issue in my design that I, I just just didn't pick up? And that I think that's when data really begins to introduce benefit, introducing those wisdom steps, whether it's through analytics or through uh, hotspots within the data, that then really begins to bring benefit to programs. Yeah, I, I completely agree, Amber. It's, it's that feedback loop that enables us to go and continuously improve. And that might be improving our design methodologies. It might be updating our you know, information specification and what data we capture. But there is no point continuously reporting a failure type, for example, if you don't then design that back into, well, how do we improve going forward? And how do we make our, our next, you know, next stretch of infrastructure better? Data with purpose. If I could offer offer another challenge to um, to those involved professionally in developing our data, it's where we use data to manage and monitor relationships. 
every program I've worked on has had a stakeholder management challenge. And if I look at the risk profile of most big infrastructure programs, it's the unpredictable nature of the behavior of our stakeholders that starts to uh, bring uh, risk of delay and cost onto programs. So how do we take the data that we can very easily gather uh, in engaging professionally with our multiple stakeholders, whether they're organizations, individuals, interest groups, or even protesters, and utilize that data to predict strategies in building a relationship, strategies in maintaining a relationship, and for those who might be objectors to the program we're delivering, how we might take them from being an out-and-out objector to at least being a passive objector to uh, to what we're trying to achieve. I think that's that that's one significant challenge for data. The plug-and-play platforms are available for us to record all of this information, but again, it's about introducing the the integration between stakeholders and how we uh, produce a heat map of the potential stakeholder risks that could uh, come and surprise us later down the track. Thanks, Ambrose. Um, so how important is it to bring in data into the conversation early on? I mean, it seems to be, I think, I think everybody's job function always wants to talk about their, their particular area at the beginning of every project, but how important is it for, to get to set things out when it comes to data at the very, very start? It's imperative if you start to look at the if you if you pivot your mind for a second just on the asset and the outcome that asset delivers. We codify and create data about something right from the moment of inception, right from the moment of it's an idea. We've written something down that is data, and then as you deepen uh, that idea into design or into even into the bid process every set of requirements that's a set of rules and data within itself you've then got the design phase you've then got the build phase you're potentially taking lots of telemetry and data throughout the build phase and then from a customer perspective they're going to be taking more data generating vast amounts of data at different levels of velocity and variety all the way through its life cycle of how that asset is used to deliver the outcome you want it to do in society and for planet the the velocity, variety, and volume of that data gets transformed as it goes through that life cycle. So you've got to be able to handle that, but also be able to understand and drive clear insight and information at every single stage. So if you don't start with the view of how do you leverage that data, you'll never deliver the outcome to the maximum benefit. You'll never get a streamlining operations. You'll never deliver it safely. You'll never decarbonize. And it's even more important in the future, which is where we're heading, especially in this um, sustainability drive around circular economy. We think now we've got another paradigm. We might be building buildings or building assets that we may need to take apart and completely reuse as part of our next generation of, of, of critical national infrastructure. You won't be able to do that unless you've got some foresight of what's going to happen and how that's all going to work. So you've got to start, and it has to be how we manage that. Data has just exploded over the last 20 years. We're now making more data every month than we did in previous cumulative years on an international stage. So if we're not able to think about it right from the outset, how we're going to manage it, how we're going to deal with it, how we're going to drive insight from it, then we're just going to miss the game at the end of it. And, and that completely comes back, Matt, to, to the point that you made earlier around we should at the very outset be defining what is the objective of this asset of this overall infrastructure and where, you know, what are the potential future applications and uses? Because then that will set the asset wisdom that we'll try and draw 
out of the asset data. And if you don't do that, you run the risk of just compiling huge pile data lakes, potentially not structured in useful manners. Um, um, but that, that cost a, a fortune in, in, in the cloud infrastructure that is never used to any meaningful purpose. So absolutely asking those right questions at the start that define the wisdom. The wisdom will then go back to defining the data that we're going to collect and it will be done in a structured uh, and efficient manner because uh, the last thing you need is, is an organization with terabytes worth of data that's not used and is just sat on infrastructure racking up monthly costs. Thanks, Martin. That that return on investment for data is always a business discussion uh, when we talk about systems and deployment of new capabilities. Um, I'm, I'm always interested in speaking to a group of our talented people. Uh, we challenge them to come up with strategies and solutions on behalf of our particular business. And virtually every one of the presentations I see starts with introducing a data-based solution, a digital solution uh, to the modern generations. As long as we've got a platform to deal with it, it will be resolved. I'm I'm more interested in stepping uh, a step forward from that to, as with any um, uh, digital type uh, project, to define the functional requirements of securing that data, providing that definition and having a discipline to do so before we introduce even more digital data systems uh, will, will, I think, provide focus on, on the business case and the return on investment for securing that data. Um, obviously, the way that the, the world has changed over the last couple of years and the way that we're recording this podcast, or, you know, virtually, remotely dispersed, um, how does data help us to work in this new sort of remote and dispersed environment? How does it help with decision-making? How does it help with delegation of tasks and um, sharing decisions, et cetera? I think it's a fascinating new world. Um, I think we've mentioned a few times, actually, earlier we mentioned trust. And um, um, trust is actually very difficult um, to gain and very easy to lose. Um, and I think as we work digitally, it's really important that we trust the people that we're working with. Um, and that's much more difficult. It's very difficult to challenge somebody about something if when they press leave, the relationship might be damaged. So I think the digital world that we're in is fascinating and it allows us to do an awful lot of things really efficiently, come together to do things, but we also can lose something. Um, if a team is used to working and performing very well together and trust each other, they can actually perform really, really well digitally, uh, remotely, with all the benefits that that brings. When a new team comes together, it's actually quite tricky. Um, and it's actually very difficult to be creative, I think, with a new team digitally, because we, as human beings, we, we, we are hardwired to trust people that we actually ate with around a campfire 70,000 years ago. We're hardwired to trust people when we you can see their entire body movements. We're hardwired to actually sort of, in a way, only really engage with them if, if we understand where they're coming from. Um, so there's lots of visual cues and everything else. They say, I think, that human beings are the least strategic of the great apes. Uh, we are. Um, uh, we, we, we have thrived massively well by the fact we communicate and the ability to do this. And we've put lost some aspects of what we do. So I think there's a, quite an interesting world. And I think there's, a, there's some really great opportunities to do things very 
very efficiently um, with digital um, uh, means of communication, but it's also a possibility to lose something. I think especially actually when we come into things of actually how we challenge each other, that's the area that I worry about, because actually wisdom comes from actually intelligent people disagreeing with each other, um, having opposing views, and actually compromise is almost what we get to with digital solutions, because we decide, Ambrose and I might be scrapping about something, but actually we trust each other, so therefore we know we, I, I might agree that Ambrose at the end is entirely right, or possibly he might even agree the opposite. But um, digital almost gets you to sort of the compromise position where you sort of reach everything sort of 50-50 and you want to be quite good. So I think it's really important that um, we make teams and bring teams together, I think, to actually trust each other. The other point actually Ambrose made earlier on was actually about some of the data sources that are now more squishy. Um, we talked about actually sort of stakeholders and things like that. In the old days, when we're talking about things that are very engineering-y, like how you design a viaduct, there's, there's particular rules that difficult rules, but actually we can apply them in a way that's actually very agreed and we know what's happening. When we come to managing stakeholders, it's become increasingly important we try and get better social value from our infrastructure. Um, and actually to reinforce the point that was made earlier about actually designing and asking the right questions from the very beginning. When you do a questionnaire or a consultation, if the questions are badly phrased, you actually might get back entirely rough. You do a really long engaged questionnaire, annoying lots of people, but actually get back stuff that's got no insight in it whatsoever. Or even worse, actually tells you the wrong thing you get the wrong insight back from it. You might make allow a particular group of, of opponents, a very narrow group, to uh, dominate the um, uh, the airwaves, and then they might get undue prominence in actually the data you get back. So there's more skill required in how we deal with social data, vastly more skill than actually in the way what we're used to. And I think we actually need to think much more heavily about some of these things. And, and, and interestingly, and for the good, we now involve social scientists and a whole range of other professional psychologists in how we do things to come up with better solutions. And what I find really exciting about designing infrastructure now 2022 onwards is the fact that multidisciplinary teams aren't an architect and an engineer and a QS or different flavors of engineer it actually comes into being a whole range of people who understand society better because actually purpose of what we do is critical infrastructure should serve society and the longer that we actually are technocrats imposing infrastructure on society that was never a great place to have gotten to so I'm actually quite excited about it but it's really really difficult to get the right data and ask the right questions to do the right things to get the to get the wisdom back that will give us good insight. Do, do you think there's a challenge that, I mean, I, you, you talk about data and you talk about social value and data feels like a very, you know, it's a very, um, you can probably shoot me saying this, but it's a very sort of hard science. It's, you know, very, very focused and it's factual, whereas social value is much softer. And, and do you think people see that and don't see the benefit of combining the two there because they feel that there's, there's two approaches needed? Is there something to be done there about behavioural change, about getting people to understand what data can do to have that that impact on society? I think that, that follows back onto the culture conversation, but also what underpins trust is transparency. And often within data, there isn't that much transparency. So when we are talking about social value or anything, I mean, we've got the same problem with carbon reporting and transparency across carbon reporting, people using different metrics, people leaving certain bits of data out people doing some creative accounting, um, probably do the same thing. It doesn't, it, it's whether it's a, a, a slightly softer metric or an incredibly hard metric that you can define, unless you're able to show, and this is the combination of data and AI, is with AI, you can end up generating black boxes, which no one knows how that data is being processed, and yet it spits out an answer. We don't understand if it's learned bias. We don't understand really what decisions it's made or if it's growing over time, and that's been evidence. Um, we're moving away from that world of, and there's a fantastic book called The End of Average, which is how we move away from 
the old world of we'll produce everything in percentages and averages and there's the there's ways of moving things around within that. So we have to be super clear on the transparency of data, how we got to the outcome and the information that we've been we've delivered in order to make that informed decision. And therefore, what the metrics of success look like based upon that decision. And we're still not very good at that. Um, and we do absolutely need to over pivot in that space to maintain and build trust. Trust is not a given. It's something that is built and maintained over time. And it's only done through transparency. And uh, and also for me, it's how you represent that 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 data, though. So the the, the trust transparency absolutely vital. But if, if you know if if the infrastructure industry was to release a marketing, you know, uh, release that said something along the lines of uh, we've managed to design our buildings with X level of thermal efficiency, it probably won't mean a lot to to the general public. It needs to be put into uh, a context that's useful. And I think there's something that we can take here from retail, food and beverage, those industries who really know consumers and are really good at giving consumers information in a format and presented in a way that makes sense to them. So, you know, it's that typical comparison. We've, you know, we've reduced carbon the equivalent of taking 10 lorries off of the road this year. Um, something that is tangible and has a little bit more meaning behind it than, you know, no, high car carbon emission and tons of CO2 that, uh, as you've said, Tim, don't necessarily mean much to many people outside of that specialism. One of the positive impacts I've seen on on recent programmes around data is concerning integration across a programme team. Um, I've just spent two years at HS2 working on phase one of delivery of the civils program there. And uh, for those who don't know HS2, it's the phil philosophical structure of the organization is based on what's called team of teams. If you don't know what that means, go and read a book by Stanley McChrystal. It's the way the organization is structured. And because of the scale of HS2, you can't rely on every decision to float upwards to an executive to come down. You set up uh, delegated teams. The, the, the glue to which is the data that is exchanged between them so that they're all informed of what each other are doing. So data is an enormously powerful way in which you can integrate and, and identify the white space between what would traditionally be silos between individual teams. That white space can be informed by uh, uh, a reasonable uh, data platform. Teams can read the data from other teams working on their program, and eventually you start to get the integration that's required. Uh, conducted by people, you do have to have people in the in the stream uh, and managers who who can uh, have the right conversations and delegate the right activities. So that's that's where I see enormous benefit through improving the quality of data, ensuring that data is is accessible within a program team and goes towards uh, breaking down some of those integration challenges. And of course, there's a huge time saving efficiency there. Absolutely. You know, the, enabling those decisions to be made quicker, those sign offs to happen more quickly and, and you know, large scale, especially government funded infrastructure is not known for swift decision making. It takes months to turn around the decision. Having access to that right data and the right format shared to, you know, with the right teams Absolutely, Ambrose. It that, you know speeds up that decision making process enormously. At one point, I heard there is also curation of data. So this cycle is done well when the data is curated, not just allowed sort of fester. People, it's mildly collected and then sort of splurged out around the place. I think curating the collection, curating the distribution, and making sure it's an intelligent process rather than just a sort of data 
uh, overly data rich um, sort of the system says no, system says yes type stuff also helps hugely. Martin, just picking up on, on what you were talking about uh, a couple of minutes ago and, and just talking about transparency and about people understanding and visualizing what we're talking about. How does how can data help us engage with with stakeholders to engage with communities and bring people along with us? Well, it, it, it can it, it can allow and, and now enable programs to increase trust and, and confidence and of course for, for large infrastructure especially something which has got a level of controversy around it such as hs2 there, there has to be that level of trust and, and that trust is gained as as matt has said through transparency so good data enables that uh, as i've already said it speeds up the decision making and if you're speeding up decision making process um then programs run on time or uh, dare I say, even ahead of program. Um, and then finally, it is for me around safety. It enables an improved culture of safety when you've in, in construction projects, when you have that good data. So you're getting the, the right people in the right place at the right time with the right tools uh, and the right materials. And therefore, there's less chance of, of mistakes happening. I was having a conversation recently with uh, a colleague in the rail sector, and they said it is unbelievable how many times they will turn up with a drill expecting to work with wood sleepers, a timber sleepers, and they're concrete. And that's because the data was incorrect in the systems that were saying what asset types were there. That That's a man out on, a, a person, I should say, sorry, out on track unnecessarily that's a risk that's a hazard so that can be removed through the use of good data and that that sort of um, ability to engage with stakeholders with accurate timely data really helps to improve all of those things uh, it's, it's a huge step forward and it should be it should be a minimum and Amber, as you said earlier with Pareto it's not a hundred percent so you, you know if, if you've got a five ten fifteen percent inaccuracy that's workable, that's manageable, uh, and hopefully it would be in areas that are less critical. Um, but it is really, really important to make sure that we do get that out there and communicated to all stakeholders, internal and external. Just pick up Martin's point on wastage. I mean, the industry still wastes far too much. We waste too much design time. We waste too much leadership time. We waste too much um, time of people on site. We waste too much materials. We waste as much as we ever did. We should, with all the systems we have, all the processes we have, with all the data we now have, with the better collection systems, we should be actually much more efficient. I do find it really depressing, the fact that actually we still probably waste as much concrete, we waste as much materials go to waste, unused, delivered to the wrong place, and then broken wrecked not delivered returned properly and we if we can crack these cycles we can do an awful lot with good just data just conscious of time and this is one subject that we have, haven't really touched yet and that's how do we protect our data um you know that's something that will certainly get raised in conversations how do we protect it Matt, can I come to you? You're smiling. I'm going to come to you first on that one. Yeah, sure. Well, look, 88% of all breaches around uh, cybersecurity uh, start with a human. So the first part of call is always uh, re-educate and create a behavior change cycle within your organization and also on the JVs and the complex projects and reiterate that um, around data protection and cybersecurity. So um, it's a muscle that everybody needs to, to, um, to 
have, particularly in today's society where we're getting state-sponsored attacks, particularly on critical national infrastructure. Uh, and we've seen that grow exponentially, that's a 300% increase over COVID and uh, an even further increase recently with the um, unfortunate Ukraine scenario that we, we, we see in society today. Um, the, the technology is there though. And the, the key part is most organizations only invest in the technology and tools and processes as a reactive perspective around data, data security and information security as a whole and protection. Um, and they, but the technology is there to invest in uh, and be much more proactive um, rather than reactive. Um, we have a, an incredible wealth of technology now with encryption and homomorphic encryption and all those kind of things. I know everybody's probably going to look at me now, what the hell are you talking about? But um, the technology is definitely there. We can tag data. Um, we can classify data. A lot of people and organizations struggle with that because what they then do is blanket classify data. Um, but a key part to, to actually data security and, and, and protecting it is, is the classification of it. Uh, the right level of classification for the right data for the right outcome and the right levels of protection. You don't need to protect everything to the same level. Um, whereas uh, because of data maturity, a lot of organizations do just blanket um, and say, no, we can't do everything because of GDPR. Well, probably about 2% of your data is GDPR, but is, is that kind of falls under, under GDPR. So it's about a pragmatic approach. Um, it's about defense in depth, and it's about education and behavior change within the organization around who's responsible. We are all responsible for the protection of data um, and become far more proactive than reactive. Thanks, Matt. Anybody else on the, uh, the protection of data? I think Matt probably covered quite a few bases there. Um, look, if we, as I said, we are, we are, the, the clock is ticking. So what I wanted to do just as a final summary, and I'm conscious that we've really only scratched the surface of this subject, but what is the, and you can't finish a podcast without talking about legacy. So what is the legacy? What is the legacy of good data? And it may be, I'm going to get around everybody. Um, perhaps on a personal level or just, you know, what happens if we get it right and we look back on what we did in this decade and years to come. Um, Tim, can I come to you first? Legacy. Thanks, James. <laughs> uh, so it gives you the time to think. Um, uh, I, was, I was going to say there's probably three things. Um, I think there's efficiency I mentioned before. I think really good data should give much better efficiency in many, many ways. I mean, Martin's point about safety, I agree. There's all these ways we should be vastly better as an industry. And I hope we finally click with data and actually can now implement it so we do. The second one is better decision-making that we've again discussed about before. Um, and there's lots of small decisions that we make. My third one is also better decision-making, but actually at a macro level. I think a lot of the schemes that we actually do are not the right schemes for society. We're still doing some legacy schemes schemes that we probably were planned 10 years ago, five years ago, and may not be the right ones that we're going to need in 2030, 2040, 2050. And I'd like to just go back as an industry, and it's where, for me, gaining sustainability data, the whole broader data to help make better decisions for society is really important. Um, uh, someone said a while ago, we spend an awful lot of time doing the wrong thing well. And I worry, actually, to some extent, that data enables us to do the wrong thing even better. The critical thing is we do the right thing. And to do the right thing, we need to actually pick and choose our projects better to work out the ones that will be the ones that contribute most in terms of outcomes for society in the future. And I think when we start doing that, we will start picking different projects, both in buildings and in infrastructure. Some of them will be the same. I can see, example, high-speed rail, metros, we will be doing in, in, in lots of things. Some others, I think we won't be. So for me, it's better decision-making. Thanks, Tim. 
Martin, can I come to you next? You can. Uh, I think Tim's covered off a, a, a lot of the sort of the baseline um, legacy uh, expectations of data. I think I'd add to the decision making was just around the responsiveness of the decision making. We we work in in the real world, and in the real world, things don't always go well. You come up against un, unexpected scenarios, um, uh, people, uh, infrastructure, environment. There are always going to be problems. To be able to react quickly and with the right decision, you're going to need the data that uh, helps to drive those. So having that that ready, and that comes back down to that very first part of deciding what are we trying to achieve here? What's the wisdom that we need to gain? If you're capturing that from the very start, your responsiveness to uh, unforeseen challenges is going to be greatly improved. So decision making, but doing it quickly in um in sometimes very messy and complex scenarios great thank you matt um for me it would be to stop talking about data i think that would be the best legacy we could ever get out of this um, because it should be that we have fluid ecosystems to achieve exactly what uh tim and martin have just uh talked about but with a very obsessed lens on people and planet um, really, uh, and that we we just become culturally much more aware that data is that empirical groundswell that we absolutely need, and um, we need to have good, robust practices around it uh, and a, a cultural shift towards it. So, no more podcasts on data then. <laughs> <laughs> Can until we achieve that point. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Ambrose. Final word to you. Um, so, thirty-five years in business, as you might imagine, I'm an entire op- optimist. And I, I concentrate on the benefits that this data environment is going to bring to individuals, um, the mid-career professionals and professionals of the future are going to be able to spend much more time in that creative, um, intuitive, uh, uh, inventive mode of thought rather than spending ages analysing and looking at data and looking at history. To me, that's an enormously uh, liberating a prospect in the future and anybody going into uh, major development major infrastructure in the future i think life's going to be a lot more enjoyable and uh, i look forward to that excellent thank you ambrose for an, an optimistic way to end the podcast um and a very good place to, to place to leave things for today um it just remains me to say a big thank you uh to the, to the guests today to tim to martin to ambrose and to matt Um, If you enjoyed this podcast, then please rate us, leave a review and, and share it with your friends and colleagues. I'll be back soon with the next episode of Talking Infrastructure. Until then, take care and goodbye.